I'd like to thank ExpressVPN for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast. It's never been more important to protect your digital rights. You can protect your data and you can take back your privacy at expressvpn.com slash gold and get three extra months free off a one-year subscription package. Well, we had pretty big gains in the U.S. stock market on Monday We gave back a good chunk of those gains today. If you remember from the podcast that I recorded on Friday, I thought that there was a chance that we could have a big sell-off on Monday rather than a big rally, both based on the weak technicals where the market closed off the week, but also on the fact that it appeared that the markets were finally taking notice of the sharp rise in interest rates, which I think are particularly problematic, especially for uh, the growth stocks. And I went over that on Friday's podcast. So if you haven't listened to that one, make sure you listen to that uh, probably before you listen to this one. But what I said on that podcast was that unless the Federal Reserve came out over the weekend and did something or said something to reassure the markets, Uh, so that they would not be as worried about rising rates. In fact, one of the things that the markets have been worried about is that this backup in long-term interest rates means that the Fed is going to react by raising short-term interest rates much sooner than everybody expects. That has been one of the stories that has been responsible for the sell-off in the price of gold. It's the belief that the Fed is going to hike sooner rather than later, and rising long-term bond yields were simply... Uh, fueling that narrative. Well, we didn't get any positive statements from the Fed, but we did get some action from another central bank. The Reserve Bank of Australia, pretty much as soon as the market started trading down under, they announced a doubling of the size of their daily bond purchase program. You know, they're doing quantitative easing over there in Australia as well. And so they doubled the size of their program. They went from buying $2 billion worth of bonds per night to buying $4 billion worth of bonds. And this immediately sent the yield on the Australian 10-year government bond uh, plunging, I think, from maybe 1.72% down to 1.61. They had seen yields recently, I think in the last few days, had gotten as high as 1.95%. So getting close to 2%, again, these are very low yields historically for Australia, but recently all the world's central banks have dramatically manipulated their interest rates lower. And the interesting thing about what the Reserve Bank of Australia did is they doubled the size of this you know, economic rescue package, right? Because that's supposedly why central banks are doing QE, right? It's to save the economy. It's to stimulate the economy. These are emergency COVID measures. Well, the economy is recovering, right? Everybody is reopening. Uh, Supposedly, that is the reason that interest rates are going up, right? Because we have this strengthening global economy. Yet the sole reason that the Reserve Bank of Australia decided to double the size of its QE program was to prevent interest rates from going up. Right? They wanted to stop yields from rising. So it's not about the economy. It's about artificially suppressing interest rates. Now, 
Why are they doing that? Well, because I think the Reserve Bank is worried that if they allow interest rates to rise back to a normal level, that could be problematic because what happens when central banks artificially suppress interest rates? Well, you get a lot more demand for loans because the price of borrowing money goes down, the demand to borrow money goes up. So a lot of people borrow money when you make it really cheap to do so. What do those people do with the money that they borrow? Well, a lot of them use it to buy real estate. And with all this borrowed money, beating up real estate prices, right? Now, real estate prices are much higher. So a lot of people in Australia borrowed a lot of money to pay for overpriced real estate. And so what would happen if interest rates went up? Well, property prices would come down and then a lot of those loans might go bad. And a lot of those loans are probably adjustable rate loans and the rate would adjust upward with a rise in interest rates. And so that would put a lot of pressure on an economy where consumers are now having to spend more money making their mortgage payments. So the Reserve Bank interferes to maintain this artificially low level of interest. But now the central bank is obviously trying to put out a fire that it clearly let by itself. Because the reason that the economy is vulnerable to a rise in interest rates is because so much money was borrowed when the Reserve Bank artificially suppressed interest rates. The reason that they have to worry about property prices falling is because they went up because central banks artificially restrained interest rates, causing the prices to go up. So they are now reacting to try to mitigate the damage from a problem that is obviously one of their own creation. Now, when the Reserve Bank of Australia intervened, this is basically a put in the bond market. They are there trying to protect the bond market. They want to stop the bond price from falling, stop yields from rising. And so they intervened. And so far it's worked somewhat because rates have come down a bit. And this helped the Australian market. It also helped knock down the Australian dollar, which had recently gotten above 80 cents. It was hitting multi-year highs. So the currency backed off a bit. And the markets rallied, not just in Australia, but all around the world. You could see as soon as the announcement came out, we had a sharp rise in S&P futures. So the rally that we had in the U.S. on Monday, that rally began Sunday night in Australia with the doubling of the QE program over there. Now, this got very little coverage in the U.S. when they're trying to explain this huge, you know, the Dow is up better than 600 points, why we had such a big rise. Nobody was really talking about the fact that our rally was made in Australia, but it was. And the significance, I think, of what the Australian Central Bank did is I think it created um, an implied put here, in the U.S. market, because I think when traders looked at what the Reserve Bank of Australia did, they assumed that the Federal Reserve would ultimately do the same thing, which is exactly what I've been saying the entire time. Just like Australia's central bank, the Federal Reserve kept interest rates even lower, even longer. The bubble that the U.S. has inflated is much larger than the one that we have in Australia. So if the Australian central bank has already panicked and is increasing the size of its QE program, not to help the economy, but to stop interest rates from rising, why wouldn't the Federal Reserve do the same thing? After all, all of these central bankers are you know, using the same playbook. So I think what happened is now the markets 
are starting to realize that they don't have to worry about a big increase in interest rates because if there is more significant upward pressure, if the bonds really start to fall, then the U.S. Federal Reserve is going to do exactly what the Australian Reserve Bank did, and it is going to increase the size of its asset purchase program, QE. It is going to start buying more bonds to prevent bond prices from falling and to prevent interest rates from rising. This was the game changer. And remember, I said, well, maybe the Fed is going to have to do something uh, more proactive. To me, it was obvious. And if you didn't know before the recent uh, congressional testimony of uh, Powell, it was clear that they were going to do whatever they could. They weren't going to raise interest rates prematurely. They weren't going to start tapering their asset purchase program or certainly not shrinking the balance sheet. But I thought if the markets kept selling off, the Fed might have to come out and 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 let the markets know in stronger terms, hey, what are you guys worried about? We got your back. Well, they didn't have to do it because the Reserve Bank of Australia did it for them. So the Fed was able to accomplish uh, boosting the market without having to do the dirty work itself. Uh, it was able to have the Reserve Bank of Australia do it. But also, it's not just merely the fact that the Australian Central Bank intervening to stop rates from rising in Australia is indicative of the fact that the Federal Reserve will do the same thing to prevent rates from rising in the U.S. It also immediately takes some of the upward pressure off of U.S. interest rates because the U.S. government competes with the Australian government in the bond market for sovereign credit. In fact, by bringing down Australian rates, Rates went down a bit all over the world because, again, all these governments are competing with one another, bidding for uh, savings and people who want to loan those savings to sovereigns because of the reduced credit risk of a sovereign defaulting. And so when yields on Australian 10 years came down because of more QE in Australia, that also brings down at least temporarily 10-year yields in the United States, which, again, took some of the pressure off the markets, which is why we got that big relief rally on Monday. But that is why the market rallied. I mean, all the other reasons are all BS. It's clear what got the momentum going. But what's also not clear is how much further it's going to go without the Fed itself stepping up to the plate. I mean, yes, I think now traders have a better sense of hope to think that there's a, a Fed put beneath the market and that at some point, if interest rates start to rise, the Fed's going to step up. And in fact, as I said on my Friday podcast, we the Fed might have already entered the market last week on Thursday when we had that big reversal in bonds that may have, in fact, resulted from a big buy order coming in from the Federal Reserve. We don't know that. We'll have to see their um, balance sheet numbers that we're going to get on Thursday of this week. But the question is, will the U.S. stock market continue to roll over. I still think that what we are going to see at a minimum is the continued rotation out of the growth-oriented momentum-type stocks, NASDAQ stocks, high PE stocks, into more cyclical, more value-oriented, higher dividend-paying type stocks, commodity stocks, and eventually gold stocks. Gold stocks finally did have a pretty good day today. Not a big day in gold. Gold was only up about 13 bucks. Uh, so barely recovering uh, from its losses. We're about 1738. But if you look at some of the action in the gold mining stocks, they started to move. The GDX 
was up about 3.5% today. And the GDXJ, the junior miners, oh, that was that was up about 3.5% as well. It was up more earlier in the day. So it gave back some of its gains uh, riding into the close. But that's a pretty big move uh, given the fact that we didn't get much of a move in the metal itself. And so maybe, maybe we've bottomed out on this correction. In fact, you know, if you l- listen to all of the you know, gold bulls that have been throwing in the towel recently. I've never really heard so many people who have been long-term bulls on gold uh, and even, you know, just, you know, more recent bulls saying that they're no longer bullish. And there are a lot of people that are still saying that they are long-term bulls on gold. They're just short-term bears. And what they want to do is they want to wait for a pullback and then buy back in cheaper. Well, the time to do that was when gold was at 2100 Right? If you were going to sell out of gold, that was the time to do it. The guys that are selling out now thinking that they want to buy it back cheaper, this is cheaper. The time to have taken some off the top, if that's what you wanted to do, uh, was uh, last summer when gold was making its highs. Now, of course, a lot of people didn't want to sell it back then because they thought it was going to go much higher. But now that we've had this pullback, you have a lot of people thinking, oh, look, gold's not working. Gold's not the stimulus asset. You got a lot of people, you know, kind of pointing to Bitcoin and saying, well, you know, people are going to buy Bitcoin, not gold. I think all these people that are selling their gold and their gold stocks because they think they're going to buy it back cheaper, they're either not going to buy it back at all or they're going to buy it back much more expensive. They're going to pay much higher prices to get back in than what they got when they bailed out. I think when we get a move, we're going to get a big move. Uh, It's going to surprise a lot of people who are on the sidelines and then people are going to have to scramble to reestablish the positions that they never should have given up in the first place. Which is why, again, I keep reiterating to my followers uh, to just keep on buying into this market and especially in the mining sector. I mean, these stocks represent some of the best investment values, even if the price of gold doesn't go up, if it just stays where it is. A lot of these stocks are great values. They're going to be playing great dividends. Uh, but I don't expect the price of gold to stay where it is. I expect the price of gold to go much, much higher. And, you know, at the same time, you're having a lot of these gold bulls throwing in the towel and getting rid of their gold. You have a lot of crypto skeptics uh, now panicking and, and, and jumping on the bandwagon. I mean, I think the latest one was Kevin O'Leary, who had always been skeptical of Bitcoin, was always saying negative things about Bitcoin. And I finally saw him, I think the other day on CNBC, he's now pro-Bitcoin. He's telling people to buy Bitcoin. In fact, he got the laser beam eyes now on his Twitter photo. So he's fully on board, right? He didn't like it at 1,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 or 20,000. But, you know, at 47,000, he loves it. And the craziest thing about his explanation for why he likes Bitcoin now. See, he didn't like it before, but now he likes it. And the reason he likes it is because now it's regulated. See, he said he didn't trust it in the past because there wasn't any clear regulation. But now that there's all this regulation, now that more Wall Street firms are involved in it, now he feels comfortable enough to want to buy it. The irony of it is all this regulation actually destroys the one real value that Bitcoin had. When it was first created as a digital currency, the value was that it wasn't regulated. And therefore, you can transfer Bitcoin uh, from one person to another person without having to go through all the regulations that you would have transferring money through a bank wire or some other uh, bank account. 
But now that we have a lot more regulation on Bitcoin and there's going to be even more coming up, I mean, the Biden administration is regulating everything. Do you expect them to leave Bitcoin alone? Of course not. There's going to be all sorts of new regulations on Bitcoin that is going to make it far more expensive than it already is to transact in Bitcoin. In fact, by far, Bitcoin will be the most expensive way uh, to transfer value from one person to another. It'll be much cheaper to do it through a normal uh, bank account. So the very existence of these regulations that is making Bitcoin uh, appealing to Kevin O'Leary is actually destroying the only appeal that it actually had. And so his rationale for liking it is one of the reasons that you should be selling it because it can no longer deliver on the one promise that it had uh, to be a good uh, way for people who want to avoid all that regulation uh, uh, to transfer some value. In fact, Mr. Wonderful is not the only shark to have done a complete 180 on Bitcoin. Mark Cuban actually responded to one of my tweets on Bitcoin. In fact, he responded three times and I have responded to his replies. But I remember not too long ago, Mark Cuban was saying that even a banana has more utility than Bitcoin. Uh, So he was always very skeptical and now he's on board. So I'm going to read the tweet that Cuban replied to. I tweeted out, congratulations to those who bought Bitcoin early, pumped up the price and who've been dumping into the hype. You succeeded in getting Wall Street to buy into the mania. When I first learned about Bitcoin, I didn't think smart investors would be dumb enough to buy. I was wrong, right? So I put that tweet out. It's got 8,600 likes at this point, but it caught the attention of another shark, Mark Cuban, who took a bite out of me a few times uh, trying to educate me as to why Bitcoin is now better than gold. So here is one of Mark Cuban's replies. First tweet, let me help, Peter. Gold is hyped as much as crypto. Do we really need gold jewelry? Gold can make you a ring. Bitcoin and Ether are technologies that can make you a banker, allow friction-free exchanges of value, and are extensible into an unlimited range of business and personal applications. I mean, pure BS. First of all, gold is not hyped. Gold is real. Are there people who recommend gold? Sure, but it's not hyped nearly to the degree that Bitcoin is. In fact, Bitcoin is 100% hype. Gold is a lot more than just jewelry. And you'd think Mark Cuban ought to ask some of his players why they have so much gold jewelry. I mean, it's not like they could just get jewelry made of something else, but gold has all sorts of applications way beyond jewelry. It's the most valuable metal on the periodic table. That is the reason that it's money. The reason it became the best money was because of other qualities, but the reason it's money at all is because of its value as a metal. Bitcoin has no value as anything. I mean, all this whole tweet is a bunch of nonsense. Then he writes, what we are seeing built with crypto today is just proof of concept. As tech continues to get better, cheaper, and faster, there will be new applications and maybe even something that supersedes what we now know as crypto today. But gold won't ever change, which is why it will die as an SOV, store of value. He refutes himself with his own tweet. The fact that gold will never change is exactly why it will always be a store of value. It's because it's consistent. That's what you need in a store of value. It doesn't change. But that doesn't mean gold doesn't adapt to new technologies. I mean, when gold was made into a coin, that was new. When gold became the backing for paper currency, that was new. 
Gold could also be the backing for cryptocurrency. Gold could also be incorporated onto a blockchain. So gold does evolve with technology, but the gold itself is a constant measure of value because the value of gold itself is a constant that can be stored. That's what Mark Cuban doesn't understand. Then he says, don't forget, or this is what he tweets, don't forget, gold was a store of value built on technology from picks and shovels to mining operations that keep you trying to improve. Whoever could use the tech of the day to find and mine the most efficiently was the most rewarded, much like crypto today. Gold is dead, Peter, move on. Again, what Mark Cuban doesn't seem to understand is what he once understood when he said that Bitcoin had less utility than a banana. And that's when you mine gold, you get the metal. And finding more efficient ways to get gold out of the ground benefits society because now we have more gold that we can use, whether we use it now or whether we store it for use in the future as a store of value. But when you mine Bitcoin, you get nothing. It is a complete waste of energy. It doesn't matter how efficient you are at mining crypto. Any energy used to mine crypto is a complete waste because what you get is nothing. The world is better off because of all the gold that has been mined that we now can use. The world is no better off at all because of all the crypto. Yes, there are some people that are better off because they were able to sell their Bitcoin to somebody who didn't understand it was worthless. And so they're better off because they made a bunch of money, but the people who bought it are going to be left worse off. But society as a whole, there is no improvement because we haven't increased our wealth because we have more Bitcoin. But we absolutely increase our wealth when we take gold out of the ground where it can't be used and bring it above ground and refine it into the metal that we all can use. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. But to me, again, I think this is all positive sign for the gold market that so many people are negative on gold, positive on Bitcoin. You know, people used to make fun of me because I didn't own Bitcoin. I mean, they understood why I owned gold. They just thought I should own some Bitcoin too. Now people are making fun of me for owning any gold at all. People think it's stupid to own any gold. You should have all your money in Bitcoin. That is how crazy this mania is. So to me, probably what's going on is there's maybe already a shift out of fool's gold into real gold. And so again, if you're listening to this podcast, you should do that. Or at least begin to do that uh, before you regret not doing it. But while a lot of the U.S. financial media was ignoring the obvious cause of Monday's rally, uh, being uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia doubling the size of its QE, and that being an indication that the Federal Reserve may do the exact same thing, and I think will do the exact same thing when their backs are to the wall, they did make up some various excuses to try to rationalize the rally or explain the rally. And one of them had to do with the fact that the Democrats had agreed to remove the $15 minimum wage from the stimulus bill. And therefore, it was more likely that the stimulus, the $1.9 trillion uh, spending bill, 
would make it through Congress sooner rather than later. And so the markets were reacting to the idea that this stimulus is coming to stimulate the economy. And again, remember, the stimulus is not going to stimulate the real economy. Yes. Will it cause more people to spend more money? Absolutely. Because that's what people are going to do with the money they get from the government. They're going to spend it. But it's not going to stimulate the economy. It will make the GDP go up temporarily. But we're simply going to be buying products that were manufactured in other countries. So maybe we'll be stimulating the Chinese economy, but we're not going to be stimulating our own economy. We're just going to be going deeper and deeper into debt. You know, what I still can't get is you look at all these unemployed people, uh, you know, 10% plus unemployment rate, even acknowledged uh, by uh, Fed Chair Powell. People assume that the economy is reopening. People are going to get vaccines and all those jobs are going to come back. Most of those jobs are not coming back. In fact, they're never coming back. A lot of these uh, restaurants, a lot of these bars that the unemployed people used to work at, they're not there anymore. They've shut down permanently. They didn't just shut down temporarily. You know, people forget that during all the years of the uh, Obama and then Trump phony recovery, where were all the jobs coming? They were all in retail services. They were in hospitality, hotels, right? Uh, They were in bars and restaurants, uh, retail stores. These are the jobs that got wiped out during the pandemic. They're not coming back. Their employers are gone. They're not going to reopen. They've already lost too much money. And of course, they don't want to have the risk of reopening because what if they have to shut down again? And of course, you do have the prospect of a $15 minimum wage being enacted at some point this year and all sorts of other regulations that are going to be unfriendly to business that are coming down the pike. So these entrepreneurs have likely thrown in the towel. They're not going to go back to their small business, which means their former employees have no jobs to go back to. And the other problem that's going to complicate their ability to get jobs is going to be a higher minimum wage that will price a lot of these people out of the market, but also more regulations that are going to make hiring people that much riskier and that much more expensive. And to boot, you have the government incentivizing people not to work by paying them more money to stay unemployed than they can likely earn if they got a job anyway. So people aren't going back to work. The unemployment rate is not really going to go down. So this is not a recovery. All that's going to happen is the unemployed are going to spend the money they get from the government. So this is just inflation. This is not economic growth. Yes, it should drive interest rates up, but not because the economy is getting better. That's what I keep hearing, that rates are rising, but it's for a good reason. They're not rising for a good reason. They're rising for a bad reason. They're rising because of inflation, but it wouldn't even matter whether it was a good or bad reason. The reality is the U.S. economy can't handle rising interest rates, just like the Australian economy. The Reserve Bank of Australia, oh, no, no, we can't let interest rates go up. Even though the economy is fine, we don't want interest rates to go up. If interest rates were going up for the right reason, which they're not, the mere fact that they go up would crush the economy because the whole economy is based on debt. It's based on interest rates staying artificially low, right? You can't be high on drugs and then take away the drugs and expect to stay high. You take away the drugs, you come down. And that's the same thing uh, with the U.S. economy. And I think the Fed knows that. They're just reluctant to admit it. But I don't think that the stimulus coming sooner rather than later is the reason for the rally because it was all just based on the stimulus 
The stimulus means bigger deficits, which would mean higher interest rates. The market is afraid of rising interest rates and a $1.9 trillion deficit spending bill would put more upward pressure on interest rates as the government is forced to sell bonds into a falling bond market. So that wouldn't explain the rally if the market was truly selling off based on the fear that rates were going up. A stimulus simply means that they go up even more. I think why the market rallied again is because now they're not as worried about the stimulus because they're pretty sure based on what happened in Australia that the Federal Reserve is going to back up the truck and provide all the freshly printed cash to uh, buy up those bonds. Now, another thing that did happen, though, that was a positive in the bill is that the Democrats had a plan B, right? And this was for the minimum wage. So their plan B was that they would have a penalty in this $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. And any large corporation, and I forget what the cutoff was, I think it was based on the number of employees or maybe it was based on revenue, I'm not sure. But if you fell into this category, if you had any employee, even one employee, that made less than $15 an hour on your payroll, you would be punished and you were going to pay a tax that equals 5% of your entire payroll, right? Not just the payroll of the one guy that you were paying less than $15, but your entire payroll, you would have this 5% penalty. So the idea was we're going to impose this huge penalty and we make sure that these big companies don't pay any of their workers less than $15 an hour or they're going to get hit with this big penalty. Now, of all the idiotic Plan Bs, this could uh, you know, be the, be the most crazy because the backlash would be immediate because I think that it wasn't going to phase in, if I'm correct. It's like you had to pay $15 an hour right now, right? It wasn't like the minimum wage that they were going to phase in over four years. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out the unintended consequences of this law because what the you know brain-dead Uh, people in Congress, the Democrats, what they believe is that in order to avoid the penalty, these corporations are just going to give raises to any of their employees that are being paid less than $15 an hour, or they're going to not give them raises and they're going to pay this big penalty. That ain't what would have happened had they not abandoned this uh, plan B. But obviously what would have happened is companies would have fired their workers that were making less than $15 an hour, at least most of them. I mean, let's say they had a few workers that were making $14.50 an hour, $14 an hour. Yeah, they may give those guys a small bump and bring them up to 15 rather than be subject to the penalty. But if you're, if you're there and you're getting $7.25 an hour, $8 an hour, $8.59, maybe you know, you're, you're the lowest of the low, entry-level job, maybe you're emptying the trash, whatever you're doing. Right. Those guys would just get eliminated completely. Right. They, 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 they're not going to bump guys that were making uh, eight dollars an hour. They're not going to move them up to 15. They're just going to fire those workers. So basically what this plan B would have done is it would have just required all large businesses to fire all their low paid workers. That's what they would have done, because if they didn't fire them, they were going to have to pay this huge penalty. So, you know, Why not just avoid the penalty by firing the workers? So that's what would have happened. And there would have been a lot of layoffs. Uh, And so this thing got dropped from the bill, not probably because they figured this out, 
But I think they maybe might have had some other type of problem, you know, getting the Joe Manchins or some of the other uh, maybe moderate Democrats to sign on to this. So they probably had to get rid of it in order for this stimulus uh, bill to sail through Congress and, and get enacted. Because the, the uh, deadline they're trying to meet is they want to get it passed before the extended uh, unemployment benefits run out so they can replace those extended unemployment benefits with these new extended unemployment benefits. Of course, it's all temporary. But as I said in the very beginning, when they did this the first time, that they were never going to let these things expire, that they were going to continuously roll this over, I think, through the entire uh, Biden presidency. Because once the government gives you something, nobody wants to vote to take it away. So we have this permanent group of people. This is really like universal basic income in disguise. It's never going to go away, which is why I said so many of these people are not coming back to work. I don't know why Wall Street expects these people to return to jobs when the jobs that they want to return to no longer exist and they're making more money not working anyway. Also, I thought it's really interesting on Bitcoin that a lot of the Wall Street firms this week, a lot of the big investment houses are now finally really jumping on the Bitcoin bandwagon. They're all gun-ho about it. And to me, what's really interesting is that they are talking about Bitcoin now because of all the QE, because of all the money printing, uh, because of all these Fed bailouts, uh, the cost of this, the deficits, that there's going to be inflation. And so now they're seeing the investment case for Bitcoin. Now, they're not seeing the investment case for gold. Apparently, they're seeing the investment case for Bitcoin. But the reason I think this is so interesting is that these are all the same investment banks who were at the epicenter of the subprime mortgage crisis, who are loading up the books on subprime mortgages and had no idea there was a housing bubble. And all of these firms, these big firms, but for these massive government bailouts and Fed bailouts, these firms would have all gone bankrupt. So they could not see that bubble coming, even though it was staring them in the face. And now they're making the same mistake with Bitcoin. They don't see this bubble. They're jumping on the bandwagon late to the game. And they got wiped out and they would have failed, but for government bailouts. And so now they're saying that because of this round of bailouts, you should buy Bitcoin, not understanding that Bitcoin itself is the same type of bubble that the one that they couldn't see in housing and what they really should be advocating to their customers who really want an inflation hedge, who really want a way of getting out of the dollar and protecting themselves against inflation. They should be recommending gold, but instead they're recommending another bubble. You know, there's never been a more important time to protect your digital data and secure your privacy than right now. That's why I and thousands of my listeners are choosing to secure our online data by using ExpressVPN. Do you believe that you don't need a VPN because you're using the internet all the time and it works just fine? Well, anytime you go online, your internet service provider can see every site that you visited. Are you confused about how it works? ExpressVPN is an app. It's on your computer. It's on your smartphone. It encrypts your data and reroutes it through a secure server. That means you can use the internet anonymously without having anybody tracking your activity. I trust ExpressVPN to protect my online data because they're rated number one by CNET and Wired and they stand by my values. So now's the time to join me and take a stand to protect your privacy. But it's not just about keeping your data secure. Uh, that is the advantage of ExpressVPN. I am using ExpressVPN for all kinds of stuff because I'm living out here in Puerto Rico. And if I just log on the internet, there's a lot of contents that I cannot access because of my location. 
But when I fire up my ExpressVPN and I change my location to, let's say, Miami, that opens up a whole bunch of sites that were previously impossible for me to access. In fact, just last week, I had to pay my Connecticut property tax on the house that I still have uh, there in Connecticut. And I went online to the town's website to pay. And I was I was paying via you know check by line. But I could not get onto the account. And then I realized that I forgot to turn on my ExpressVPN. So as soon as I engaged the VPN, and now that website believed that I was trying to access it from Connecticut, I was able to get on the site and pay my taxes. If I didn't have ExpressVPN, there would have been no way to do that, and I would have been forced to write out a check and put it in the mail. Instead, because I had ExpressVPN, it was no problem to pay my tax online. I wish I didn't have to pay the tax, but since I have to pay it, I'm glad I have ExpressVPN to make it a lot easier. So take back your privacy at expressvpn.com gold and get three extra months free on a one-year subscription package. Again, that's expressvpn.com gold. Get three extra months free. Visit expressvpn.com gold right now. But of all the crazy proposals uh, making their way through Congress, the craziest one was the one just introduced by Elizabeth Warren, and this is for the wealth tax. And I cannot stand listening to these Warren interviews where she has that smug look on her face and she's talking about a two-cent tax, right? Two cents. I mean, she never will even say 2%. And it goes up to 3%, I think, if your net worth is over a billion. It's 2% if your net worth is over 50 million. And uh, she just says, I'm just asking the, the wealthiest Americans... Uh, to chip in two cents. That's it, two cents, right? She does. She just wants to focus on two cents because two cents doesn't sound like a lot of money. But 2% is a lot of money when you pay it every single year on the same asset, right? You own an asset. And if you have to pay 2% of the value of that asset every year, well, after 10 years, that's 10% of the value of the asset. It's cumulative. Every year you have to pay the tax over and over and over again. So it's not just an insignificant two cent tax. It is a very, very big tax that is going to be extremely disruptive if it were ever to be enacted. And I don't think it will. I mean, I personally think that this uh, estate tax is dead on arrival. And if it is, what is the reason? Why is Elizabeth Warren introducing a tax that she knows is not going to uh, pass? I think what they're doing here, this is all politics. My guess is that they know this is not going to pass. But what they really want to pass is a big increase in income taxes on the rich, particularly in capital gains taxes on the rich. So first, they want to have this one fail. But then they want to introduce the other one as a lesser of two evils. This is like a distraction. And there are going to be some moderate Democrats that are going to oppose this wealth tax. But they don't want to be seen as like, you know, in bed with the rich. So if they oppose this tax, they won't be able to oppose the higher income tax because they're going to come up with a lot of reasons. And I'm going to go over some of those reasons now why this tax is completely unworkable. So once you force some of the Democrats to articulate why they're against a wealth tax, they can't be against the higher income tax because now that means they're just in the pockets of the rich. So I think this is an effort to distract people 
and to set up a situation where you've now put more pressure on the moderates, moderate Democrats like the Joe Manchins, right, who oppose a wealth tax for sure and who probably oppose higher income taxes. But once they shoot down a wealth tax, they can't do it again. They're, they kind of, you know, use all their ammunition on we got to kill this wealth tax and, and they're against that. OK, well, we can't do the wealth tax, so we'll at least do higher income taxes. You pretty much put people in a corner where they now have to at least go for that. So I think that this is really just increasing the chances. And if a lot of people thought that, hey, it's a, it's a narrow margin, it's 50-50, the Democrats are not going to be able to get through big tax hikes on the rich, they will. And I think having the wealth tax go down to defeat increases the chance that the higher income taxes come in even higher than before because it's to make up for the fact that, hey, the rich dodged this bullet so they can't get away scot-free. Okay, we got to do something and we're going to raise the income tax. But I want to talk a little bit again, and I know I've talked about it before on podcasts in the past, but I know my audience continues to build. And so a lot of people listening to me now you know, may not have hear, heard uh, some of my discussions of a, a wealth tax. But number one, a wealth tax is unconstitutional. I mean, there's no way it is constitutional. The income tax was unconstitutional. Then they amended it in 1913, right? They couldn't just tax income. They had to amend the Constitution to allow them to tax it. Why? Because income was a direct tax. All direct taxes have to be apportioned. That's why the income tax was struck down. The Supreme Court said, hey, this is a direct tax on income. You didn't apportion it. It's unconstitutional. The government doesn't want to apportion it. That's very difficult. And it really falls very hard on states that are poor, that don't have as much income. Because let's say you have twice as much income in a rich state as a poor state, then the income tax rates will be, have to be twice as high in the poor state because the poor state is going to have to you know, uh, come up with its proportionate share of the tax. So they never want to apportion a direct tax. So what they ended up doing was amending the Constitution. Okay, well, the Constitution says that Congress can tax incomes, right, without regard to apportionment. It doesn't say they can tax wealth because the tax on wealth is also a direct tax. I mean, it's more obviously a direct tax than a tax on income where you're taxing the income derived from wealth. But in a wealth tax, you're taxing the wealth itself, like property tax. One of the reasons that there is no federal property tax now is because it's unconstitutional. So it is an unconstitutional tax. If they want to tax wealth, they need to amend the constitution just the way they did it for the income tax. And of course, you know, my father used to argue, and I think correctly so, that the 16th Amendment didn't even change uh, uh, the Constitution. And that all that it did is it put the income tax into the category of, a, of an excise tax, meaning that it would have to be collected as an excise tax, which it's not. I'm not going to get into that on this podcast. If you want to understand my father's thinking, but not following his footsteps, you can get a copy of his book, The Federal Mafia, while I still have copies from shiftbooks.com. I mean, he really lays out his case uh, to, you know, when he explains the 16th Amendment and what it actually did. And by the way, that is one of only two books in American history that has ever been banned right, by the U.S. government. The U.S. government banned that book. They banned my father from selling it. The only other book in American history to ever be banned was Fanny Hill, and it was banned because they considered it pornographic. You know, certainly today's standards, I mean, you know, it can can be in a children's library. But back then it was, you know, it was pornographic. But Fannie Hill 
and the Federal Mafia are the only two banned books in American history. If you want to own one of them, you can buy the Federal Mafia at shiftbooks.com. But again, don't follow my dad's advice on not paying taxes. Pay your taxes. If you want to pay lower taxes, well, you can move to Puerto Rico. But let's go past the constitutional arguments as to why the tax is unconstitutional. I want to talk about why it's bad economics, why it's actually bad for the economy. Even if the Constitution allowed a direct unapportioned tax on wealth, we shouldn't have it. Now, number one, I get a kick again out of Elizabeth Warren with her two cents just on the rich. Well, the original income tax, when it did come in in 1913, that was sold to the American public as a way to soak the rich. In fact, the Americans were promised tax cuts in exchange for an income tax. The government was going to cut tariffs, which were, you know, at the time, government understood that middle-class Americans paid the tariffs. Donald Trump wanted to pretend that the Chinese paid the tariffs. But back in 1913, Americans were smart enough to know that consumers paid the tariffs. And what the politicians said is, hey, if we have this tax on the rich, this income tax on the incomes of the rich... Well, we can lower taxes on middle-class Americans who aren't even going to pay the income tax and we'll lower your sales tax. So that was the deal that American taxpayers made with the devil. And of course, the devil came to collect uh, much quicker than anybody could have imagined. I mean, they started jacking the rates up almost immediately, almost immediately after the income tax was passed. But let's go back to the original tax. The bottom rate was one cent, one percent. It was a one cent tax on annual incomes above $3,000 for single people. Uh, It was $4,000, I think, for couples. Now, you might think, oh, $3,000, that's pretty low. Well, not back in 1913. The easiest way to think about it is in terms of gold. Gold was $20 an ounce in 1913. So if somebody earned $3,000 a year, they earned 150 ounces of gold. Well, how much would you have to earn today to earn 150 ounces of gold? It's about $250,000 a year. So could you imagine a politician today, if we had no income tax at all, saying, I want to have an income tax that asks the 1%, the people that earn over $250,000 a year, to chip in one cent. One cent. That was the whole tax, right? Oh yeah, that's a great deal, right? That's what Americans were told in 1913. One cent. The top bracket, that the highest bracket, this was what Carnegie and Vanderbilt and Rockefeller, right, their bracket, the highest bracket was 7%, so 7 cents, right? They were asking the, the millionaires to chip in 7 cents. You didn't get into the 7% bracket until your income was over $500,000 a year. Now, what was $500,000 a year in 1913? Well, it was $25,000 ounces of gold. So how much would you have to earn this year to earn 25,000 ounces of gold? You'd have to earn more than $40 million. So the top tax bracket didn't kick in until $40 million. And then they only had to chip in seven cents. That was it. Well, think about that when you're paying your income taxes this year, when you're filling out your 1040 and you're shelling out 40% of your income to the government or 50% when you had the states, think about that's 40 or 50 cents. Think about how this tax got started. The first year that the income tax was enacted, fewer than 4% of Americans paid any income taxes at all. And most of the ones who did pay it were in the 1% bracket. That was it. 
you know, so imagine if that was the tax today. So my point is, it's the camel's nose under the tent. So sure, Elizabeth Warren can promise that the estate tax is only going to kick in on estates worth 50 million or more. Yes, they made the same promise about the income tax. It only took a few years before the rates skyrocketed and a few more before they started lowering uh, the threshold for where you had to start paying it. So the same thing would happen now. They would start a wealth tax at 50 million, then they bring it down to 40 million, 25 million, 10 million. Meanwhile, inflation keeps pushing up uh, the price of everything. And before you know it, everybody would be paying the wealth tax, just like everybody is paying the income tax now. Only the wealth tax is going to be an even bigger problem uh, to comply with. And that's what I'm going to get into now, which is the complete unworkability of this tax. The wealth tax taxes all of your assets all over the world on an annual basis. And it requires you to get an appraisal of all of these assets. How do you do that? I mean, how expensive is that going to be? I mean, it can be done, but it's very expensive to appraise your assets annually. And you're talking about, you know, your uh, art collection, your uh, sports memorabilia, your rare cars, you have a wine cellar, appraising all this stuff. One of the hardest things to appraise, though, will be a business that you own. You're a small business, or obviously maybe not a small business, but mid-sized business. You've got a business that may be worth 30 or 40 million or 50 million, because obviously you have to add that to your houses and whatever, all the things that you own. But now you have to appraise an independent business. I mean, how do you know what it's worth? These appraisals are going to be expensive. Have you ever had your house appraised because you want to refinance your mortgage? Uh, I mean, think, look at that. Look at how long it takes you to get an appraisal. Look at how big that is. And, you know, it, it's, it's not cheap to appraise just one residential house. I mean, maybe 750 bucks or something to get an appraisal. You get the appraiser comes in and he tries to appraise your house, right? Well, imagine if you had to do that, not only on your house, but on everything you owned every single year. You know, Elizabeth Warren makes a big deal and says, well, you know, we tax real estate and there's an appraisal. Yes, there's a real estate tax, but the individual homeowner is not responsible for appraising the house. The government appraises the house, the local government. And they generally do it maybe every three years, every five years. They don't do it once a year and they don't bill you for it. They do the appraisal themselves and then they mail you a bill. Now, if you don't think the appraisal is correct, you can challenge it and try to show that it's wrong, but you can accept their appraisal and you can pay the, the, the bill. And generally, the appraised values, in many cases, are under what you can probably sell the place for. Uh, and so people don't object because they know the house is probably worth more uh, than uh, what it's being uh, taxed at, certainly today with everything going way up. But that's not what Elizabeth Warren is talking about doing. The federal government isn't going to appraise every house in the country every year and send the taxpayer a bill. The federal government expects the owner of the house to hire an appraiser every single year and pay the 2% tax every year on what the house appraised at that year. But houses are easy to appraise compared to a business. Can you imagine having to appraise your business? That appraisal could probably cost you five, ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000, maybe more. And you got to do it every year? This is crazy. I mean, this shows you how little regard people like Elizabeth Warren have for the people that actually make this country run. The businessmen, the entrepreneurs, the people who run these businesses, who help 
produce goods and provide services who employ the vast majority of Americans. They have nothing better to do with their time than to appraise every single thing they own every single year. This would be a nightmare. If you think complying with the income tax is expensive, that's a walk in the park compared to having to pay this ridiculous wealth tax. This wealth tax would destroy wealth. That's all it would do. And who benefits most from that wealth? Not the really rich people who have all that wealth. They're fine. It's going to be the middle class. It's going to be the poor. They're the ones that are benefiting from that wealth more than the people who created it. That's the beauty of capitalism. Which brings me to the most important reason to oppose a wealth tax in that it destroys wealth. Right? The Supreme Court recognized this a long time ago. Chief Justice John Marshall said, the power to tax is the power to destroy. Anything the government taxes, it can destroy. If the government taxes wealth, it destroys wealth. And there's, again, an economic uh, truism. You get less of what you tax. So if we tax wealth, we will have less wealth. Wealth is why we have economic growth. It is the capital stock that increases our standard of living. All the goods that we have, all the services that are provided, they come from wealth. They are byproducts from the wealth that we create. If we destroy that wealth, then we will have lower standards of living. We will have less goods and services to consume and we'll have fewer employment opportunities. That is the biggest damage that will be done from this wealth tax is it's going to force a lot of businesses out of business. A lot of people are just going to liquidate Uh, their businesses rather than try to appraise them on an annual basis. And again, you have an illiquid business. How do you pay the tax if you don't have a liquid asset? Yes, if you own common stock, you can easily sell off 2% of the stock every year to cover the tax. But what if it's an illiquid company? You can't sell any of the company. So you have to keep reaching into your pocket. You can own raw land. You can own a lot of investments or assets that have a lot of value. Think about the cryptocurrency guys. What about all these whales that have hundreds of millions of dollars worth of cryptocurrency? These things aren't paying any income that they could use to pay the tax. No, they're going to have to start unloading 2% of their crypto every single year. Can you imagine if all the big whales you know, how to start selling 2% of their, of their stashes, what they've been hodling. I mean, that alone could crash the crypto market. And in fact, a lot of the people who own these non-dividend paying stocks, even though they're public, they can pay a wealth tax on that portfolio one year, and then the portfolio can come crashing down the next year, and all the wealth is gone, but they paid a tax on it. But it's the illiquid businesses that are going to be far more problematic. I mean, at least the stock portfolio, you don't have to get it appraised. You just have a statement from your broker and you know exactly what it was worth at the end of the year. Although, talk about pressure to paint the tape, right? Obviously, if, if, you're, if your stocks are going to be appraised at the end of the year, there's going to be a lot of reasons to want to get those prices down low so that you would have a lower uh, tax to pay. But again, yeah, there's going to be all sorts of uh, legal maneuvers that are going to be employed to try to minimize the damage done by the estate tax. As if we don't have enough of that type of damage already with all the money we waste on lawyers and accountants because we want to mitigate the damage done by the income tax. If now we have to devote even more of our resources towards mitigating the damage of the estate tax, that just reduces the competitiveness and the productivity of our economy even more. I mean, why do we want to bog down our entrepreneurs with all this additional paperwork 
on top of the paperwork they already have and all these additional costs. It would be a complete nightmare. A lot of people would leave the country. Of course, Elizabeth Warren thought that there was a, she had a way of handling that. She wanted to impose an exit tax on anybody who left the country in order to avoid the wealth tax and so really, really make them pay. But, you know, this is a terrible tax, uh, unconstitutional, hard, bad economics, immoral. I mean, there's nothing that you could say about this tax. Of course, Elizabeth Warren, you know, acts as if this is the only fair way to tax people. Yeah, let's have this is fair to have just one percent of the population paying this tax. How's that fair? You know, the only fair tax, if we're going to have a tax that's fair and we're going to be honest about that, what is a fair tax? A national sales tax. That's fair. Everybody pays the tax every time they buy something and everybody pays the exact same percent. So let's say they made a national sales tax of 10%, right? That's fair. No matter who you are, no matter what income bracket you fall into, no matter what gender, whatever, what race, none of this matters, right? It doesn't matter if you have kids, if you don't have kids, if you give to charities, if you own a house or you rent a house, everybody is treated the same no matter what you fall into. If you spend $10, you pay a dollar in tax. That's it. What can be fairer than that? See, the problem is, The Democrats talk about fairness, but they don't want a fair tax code. They want a tax code that punishes successful people, wealthy people. They want a tax code that gives lower income earners a free ride. They want a tax code that is extremely unfair, that skews the burden on the very rich. Now, why is that? Because they're not looking for their votes. They want a tax code that favors their constituency, the people that they want to vote for them. They're promising an unfair tax code. And that's what a wealth tax would be that only supposedly taxes the wealth of the rich, but doesn't tax the wealth of everybody who doesn't meet that threshold. I mean, why should somebody who has a net worth of 60 million pay the wealth tax, but someone who has a net worth of 40 million doesn't pay anything? I mean, the reason that the politicians want to set the threshold at 50 million is because most of the voters are way below 50 million. So they're willing to vote for a tax that they don't think they're going to have to pay. That's exactly what the public fell for, for the income tax. The only reason the public wanted an income tax is because they didn't think they were going to pay it. They were in favor of the tax because Rockefeller was going to pay it. If they were told that they were going to pay it, they would have opposed it. Americans only favor a wealth tax because they don't think they have enough wealth to ever qualify. It's the same a deal with the devil that we've already made once, which is why you know we're not going to make it again. But a lot of people will say, oh, Peter, but you know a sales tax isn't fair because poorer people spend more of their income than rich people. And so the poorer people or middle-class people would end up paying a higher percentage of their incomes in taxes, which is true. But they wouldn't pay a higher percentage of their spending, which is what counts. You see, if you have a really rich guy, let's say somebody earned $100 million in a year, but only spent a million of it on consumption. That's all he spent on his, you know, on his life. He would only pay sales tax on the million he spent. And if it's 10%, he would spend $100,000 in tax. And people think, well, but he's not paying any tax on the rest of his income. Yes, because he hasn't spent it yet. All that income is eventually going to get spent, or a lot of it is going to be spent, tax it when it's spent. Because the beauty is, between the time it's earned and the time it's spent, what is it doing? It's not stuffed under a mattress. 
It's saved or invested. And it's savings and investment that grow the economy. So when people earn a lot of money and don't spend it, they are benefiting the entire economy. They're benefiting society as a whole. They are making their wealth available to society to grow the economy, to fund business creation, employment, capital investment, all the things that we need. So don't tax people on how much they put into the economic pie. Tax them on what they take out. So let's say you have a rich guy who's earning a lot of money and just a philanderer or playboy, and he's spending everything he earns. That guy is going to pay a much higher tax than the guy who's very frugal and who is saving and investing most of what he earns and only spending a little bit. Because it's the spending where you want to tax people. Again, I said earlier, you get less of what you tax and more of what you subsidize. So you don't want to tax savings and investment. We want more of that. Just tax people when they spend, because that's the fun part. That's where they're just indulging themselves, right? When I go out and I buy something, that benefits me. Now, a lot of people think, oh, but it benefits the guy that sold it to me. No, what benefited the guy that sold it to me was the capital that enabled him to have a job, that enabled the production of whatever uh, was sold to me. Consuming is the reward for production. It's the end game. It is not the engine that drives the economic car. It is the caboose. Anybody can consume. The the tough part is to make the stuff that everybody is consuming. And that comes from saving and investing. So people are earning money. Eventually they're going to spend it. That's when you tax it, right? So if you have a lower, lower income people, if some of them happen to save more money, then they will pay less taxes. They won't start paying the taxes until they start spending what they've saved. And if they've invested their savings, if they've earned a return, then they'll end up spending more, right? Because if somebody is wealthy, and but they're earning a lot of money and they're investing it, they're not spending it, they're investing it, and now the wealth is growing, they may end up spending a lot more money in the future on themselves. They'll be able to buy a yacht, they'll be able to buy a private jet, Uh, And they'll pay some pretty big taxes when they buy those high ticket items. But maybe if they had spent everything they earned instead of saving and investing, they never would have saved up enough money, had enough money to buy those really expensive things. So eventually um, those taxes are going to get paid. But that is the only fair tax. But the liberals always want to demagogue that and say it's not fair. It's not fair because the wealthy people uh, have all the savings, all this investments. Thank God. That is the the seed corn to economic growth. The reason that we have the standard of living that we do is because so many people didn't spend everything they earned. If everybody lived paycheck to paycheck, if nobody saved anything, then there'd be no capital investment. We'd we'd still be in the Stone Age. If you don't understand that, go back and buy my book, uh, How an Economy Grows and Why It Crashes, and see how this group of three people on an island went from nothing because they had to spend all day long fishing by hand to the growth of an economy because somebody underconsumed didn't eat for a day and invested in a net. It's that capital equipment, that net that made the fishermen more productive that was the key to economic growth. Well, if there was a wealth tax on that island, if the minute Abel invented a net, they considered that wealth and they taxed it away, well, then they never would have made any progress at all. 